Welcome once again, wrestling fans, to another edition of Classic Wrestling Memories. I am Seth, a.k.a. Xandrax, the mayor of Geekville, and the co-host of Classic Wrestling Memories. And we got a very fun show for, for you. This is a show I've been wanting to do for a while. And it kind of piggybacks off our last episode, talking about Ravishing Rick Rude. And while the Rick Rude show talked a lot about his work in WWE and for Crockett and, and WCW and such... We're going to focus on a specific about six to eight month period in time for WCW. And we are going to talk about the stable that really was a super stable. And and when we go through some of these names, you'll see why if you haven't heard of it. We're talking the second incarnation of the Dangerous Alliance, which lasted in WCW from 91 to about 92. And the reason why I say a second incarnation is because there were two other incarnations, one in AWA and one in ECW. And the intertwining link with all these Dangerous Alliances is that they were put on by Paul E. Dangerously, now known as Paul Heyman, the advocate of Brock Lesnar. So uh, let me introduce to you my co-host, coming from a soft padded cell in South Kakalaki, Crazy Train Jonathan Bullock. All aboard, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, I'm kind of looking forward to this podcast, too. This episode uh, in particular, uh, I caveat was not really watching wrestling at this time i've discussed before that i was a i served a mission for my church right out of high school before i went to college and this was during that time frame so i was uh, doing the lord's work so to speak i wasn't really watching wrestling so what i know of this particular angle and storyline and stable was based upon reading the magazines when they came out once a month the old wcw magazine and the after mags and watching the pay-per-views that involved this angle uh, at members of the church's homes on the Sunday nights or pay-per-views. I didn't see a lot of the other stuff, the promos, the other matches, and things like that until a couple years after they had happened on some uh, tapes, and I started tape trading again when I got home. So uh, this is something that Seth saw firsthand that I didn't, which is kind of a a twist here (laughs) on this particular podcast, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, usually you're kind of the one leading some of the knowledge uh, when it when it comes to the actual content. Well, so this is this, this I, I'm I mean it's when you talk about all the moving parts of this stable and who they feuded with and what the whole purpose behind this storyline was, I, I love it. I mean, even when I was seeing it secondhand through the magazines as it was happening, as a wrestling fan, I was like, "Wow, that's a lot of talent," you know? <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, indeed. So, uh I figured we would start with kind of the first shot in the uh, so-called hostile takeover, and that would be Halloween Havoc 1991. I mean, does that seem like a fair sp- spot to start out in? Yeah, I mean, I think that's is legitimately where it was started, and you kind of got to know all the moving parts and what was what was going into this to understand how this angle came to be. Um, Paulie had been an announcer, you know, he had been a manager when he first came into the company in like '89. And he did the you know the famous original Midnight Express versus uh, uh, Midnight Cornette's Midnight Express was like kind of the first high profile angle he did, and then they kind of transitioned him to an announcer, and uh, he got fired legitimately backstage. Ric Flair was the head of the booking committee, and he fired him. Um, pretty well documented by both Heyman and Flair. Uh, yes. So I don't think we're, we're breaking any ground there. But he had been off television for about a month or so leading into Halloween Havoc. No one had seen him. They hadn't really discussed on air where Paul Dan- Paulie Danger. I think maybe it was one of those things they had on the hotline. You remember the old one nine hundred, ninety nine hundred? Yeah, I think it, that might have been where they discussed. And of course, the dirt sheets knew about it. And if you read the dirt sheets, you knew it was going on. So that's where Paulie was. Medusa had been brought in as to be a woman's wrestler, mostly because she'd been in Japan and she had been. They had the working deal with New Japan. But then they didn't have anybody for her to wrestle, so she was kind of floating around aimlessly. Uh, Bobby Eaton had been in the middle of a, of a long babyface run because Cornette and, and Stan Lane had left, and you know Cornette had started Smoky Mountain, so Bobby Eaton was kind of floating by himself. Uh, my understanding from Bobby is it just his contract was a little harder to get out of than Stan and Cornette's, and he had a wife and kids. You know, he, he wanted the steady check. Um, Steve Austin, Austin had just come into the company as a hot young rookie. Uh, from Dallas, where he had got his start. And yes, yes, folks, we're talking that Steve Austin. 
Yeah, Stone Cold. Yeah, and he was very green at the time, and this is before his knees were bad. So his wrestling style was very different than what we saw as Stone Cold. He was a very much a technical wrestler. He was trying to be a, a kind of a new age Ric Flair by his own admission. Had long hair and was escorted to the ring by his wife at the time, his first wife, wife. Jeannie, uh, and she went by Lady Blossom. Um, and he was immediately pushed into the the world television title mix and beat Bobby Eaton, as a matter of fact, for the world title for the world television title. So he was already established as a heel, and they had run an angle about a month prior to Halloween Havoc. Um, actually, kind of run the whole summer where one of the Steiners had gotten hurt, and so uh, Scott had and Rick had taken a new partner with Bill Kazmaier, and there was a tag team called the Enforcers, which was Double A Arn Anderson and Larry Zabisco, and they had uh, they called themselves the Enforcers because of Arn's character, and Arn didn't have anything to do because Rick had Rick had gone to the WWF and. Tully was not allowed to come back after he tested positive, so the Four Horsemen thing kind of fell through. And he, he, I mean, Arm was a tag guy, so they tagged him as Zabisco. Zabisco had been in the company for a while, uh, feuding with Barry Windham in the late '80s. So all the guys had been there. Uh, they either they were just in different places, except for Ravishing Rick Rude, and that's kind of where where Halloween Havoc takes us. And 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 before you get to that, I think the very beginning of Halloween Havoc kind of started the Dangerous Alliance. Uh, with the breaking of Barry Windham's arm. Do you remember that particular angle at the start of the pay-per-view? Yeah, where uh, Larry and Arn uh, put Barry's hand in a, uh, he Barry was getting out of a car, and mm-hmm. uh, Arn and Larry came up, and then they, they literally smashed the car door uh, into his hand. Now, obviously it was worked, but uh, it, right. it looked very convincing for its time. Sure, and it was a great injury angle. It made sense. They were the new heel tag team champions, and they were going to have to face Dustin and, and uh, Barry that, that evening for the titles. So that's heel 101, isn't it? Eliminate your competition before you have to fight them. <laughs> so, right. And, and that's the first shot. But we as fans don't know yet that there's a bigger picture coming on. That would come later, and we discussed this last week, with the WCW Halloween Phantom. Uh, you want to re- recap the, the listeners' memories on that uh, from last week? Yeah, absolutely. Um it was a mystery wrestler just simply being billed as the Halloween Phantom, and he was supposed to wrestle Tom Zank because Tom Zank was in the middle of a mid-card babyface push. I think he'd been uh, right. the light heavyweight champ for a while. I think he even I think he even beat Arn for the TV title uh, around this time as well. Yeah, I, yeah, I think at one point he might have even been on the six-man. Like It was like him and I want to say him and like Junkyard Dog and, and maybe Ricky Morton or something. Or Tommy yeah, Rich, or, or something like that. Or, yeah, or Big Josh might might be in there. You know, or go. Dustin. There was some other group of baby faces. Yeah, <laughs> but anyway. Right. Um, so the matches. Uh, so Tom Zink is introduced, and you know com- comes to the ring. You know, white meat baby face, and then they start playing uh, box uh, Takata and Fug, which is. That's that famous song that you hear every Halloween that it's usually played on an organ. You know, so it's the Phantom of the Opera song before Andrew Lloyd Webber's <laughs> right. musical overtook it, pretty much. Um, and so here comes this guy to, uh, to the ring with a big black broad uh, broad brimmed hat, and he's got a he's got a cape on that he's ho- holding in front of his nose like Dracula, yep. and he's got a a Phantom of the Opera mask. It was a, it was a full mask. Uh, just imagine if instead of just having one piece of his face covered, like it was a mask where there's part of it's white, where the Phantom of the Opera part would be. It was it was a regular old school like super mass superstar, uh, Mister Wrestling, you know, Del Wilkes Patriot mask. That half was black and half was white. You know. Mm-hmm. With a very pr- protruding and predominant mustache coming out from underneath. Yeah, it was exactly what I what I was getting at. <laughs> so y- you're watching this, and if you're able to put two and two together, you're like, "Hey, that mustache looks awfully familiar." Now they now remember to their to their credit, they did put him in a full body suit. He had on right because like, Rick always wore full trunks, and he but he had like the tight you know like spandex shirt on top of it with long sleeves to cover up his tattoos because you know right. Rick had that. That that sailor anchor on his on his forearm, and mm-hmm. I didn't notice until I, we were prepping for the show and I went back and watched the, the, this Halloween Havoc earlier this week. 
Uh, he'd even taken uh, some late, some lycra spandex and covered up his boots. So you couldn't even see the, the insignia on his boots. They were, they were trying to mask who it was. Uh, but the mustache, I, obviously Rick's like, nope, not going to shave that, you know? So, <laughs> Right. It, it actually was not unlike something a luchador would wear, you know? Like, no, no. Like, like, like a, a, a mil mascaris where he's, he's just totally covered, you know, long sleeves, well, long just- pants and the whole thing. It was essentially the same outfit they put Ric Flair in to be the Black Scorpion a year earlier, uh, except the mask was different, really. you know, Same thing. You're trying to and, – and no offense to Ric Flair, Rick Rude had a much more distinguishable body than Ric Flair did. It's hard to cover up those abs that he had, especially in that era of wrestling. There wasn't anybody else built like Rick Rude. You know? They had right. to cover up his upper body. They had to if they wanted to keep the, the secret somewhat real. Mm-hmm. But anyway – the Halloween Phantom wins the match with the reverse neckbreaker, the you know the rude awakening, and I think that's really about the time. Uh, I think it was Jim Ross was doing the announcing. I think that was about on screen. Jim Ross as the announcer was starting to figure it out. Like, hey, that move looks awfully familiar. And then of yeah, course it was, he, it, it was him and Jesse Ventura. Okay. No, no, sorry, it was it was him and Tony Schiavone. And you are correct. He even called yeah. it the rude awakening. Mm-hmm. And then Rude whips off the mask, reveals who he is. And really, no, 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 that, ca- th- that came later. That came later, Seth. Okay. Uh, in fact, I think I think there might be a clip that you have. Uh, uh, no, no, I think you don't have a clip. Never mind. But later on, Tony Schiavone uh, was told that he was going to have a, 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 a interview, and they did it on the rampway. This is back when WCW. For those of you who remember this era, had the rampway that went from the entrance to the edge of the ring, and it was all the same level. And they used to do spots on it all the time. And mm-hmm. if you were Mick Foley as Cactus Jack, you did spots off of it a lot. But I digress. Um, <laughs> but anyway, they, you know, Tony Schiavone, uh, that was the first time we had seen his fans, um, Paul E, back on TV. And he essentially said that um, – and he came out with Medusa in an evening gown, and he was in his suit and tie. And this is the first time the fans had seen Medusa in a while either because, like I said earlier, she hadn't been doing anything and they never wrestled. And he, he – he told the story that, that he said in this promo was essentially he had been fired uh, by the championship committee and by by Jim Hurd, who was, of course, the president, the infamous now president of WCW at the time. And that the one thing that they forgot was he still had a manager's license. And the reason that the fans hadn't seen him in a month was because he had been fired. But he got he got he you know, he's talked to his lawyers and found out that he had the right to manage still. And so he went to Medusa uh, and Medusa was unhappy. And he said, well, go find me somebody who can, can destroy the championship committee. And he said in this promo, essentially the best way to destroy the committee is to tear it down brick by brick. And the best way to tear down anything brick by brick is to start with the foundation and the foundation of WCW is sting. So he told Medusa to go out and find the one man who could, take out sting and then this that's about the time the phantom comes walking down the rampway and that's when he took his mask off and then rude cut a promo basically saying you know uh when my money man and he kind of looked over at paul Heyman and my woman and he looked over at medusa tell me they want somebody to get gone i'll get them gone and i'm here to take you out sting so i mean he he threw down the gauntlet right away and sting was without a doubt the biggest baby face in the company at the time agreed Mm mm-hmm Oh, yeah, absolutely. So Rude's got his sights firmly set on Sting's U.S. championship. And really about this time, uh, Sting started receiving gifts from a mysterious benefactor. Right. And at the Clash of the Champions, the biggest gift was supposed to be presented to him. And so the big, near the beginning of Clash of Champions, they have this storyline where it's, what was it like? I know Medusa was in a gypsy outfit. And right. The original two boxes had been the first one had been Abdul the Butcher, and they were the old Memphis looked like a like an oversized gift box with a big bow on it. You know, right. and Abby busts out and takes out. And then the clash before Halloween Havoc, uh, he got a second gift box. Out bust Cactus Jack, and he takes out Sting. Uh, so that had been the running storyline with Sting before Rude came into the picture. Who's sending him these mysterious gift boxes? And you're right. This, but this wasn't a gift box like the like the Cactus Jack and Abdullah. This looked like a, a covered, 
you know, handsome uh, hand carried like you would see in like ancient Egypt, you know, that, yeah, like, or, or Aladdin or something like that. Yeah, right, right. Some very Middle Eastern. And, and it had all these oiled up muscle guys carrying it out. And you're right. Medusa comes out looking, you know, just go dogs. I mean, come on. It's it's Medusa in her prime. She was looking fabulous, dressed up like essentially a belly dancer and did a, a sensuous dance for Sting. Um, as sensuous as you could do in WCW in 1991. Yeah, for, for what was essentially PG programming. Right. And, 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 you know, essentially positioned him so that his back was to the box and Lex Luger, who was the world champion and had recently turned heel and Harley Race was his manager, clip his knee from behind. And, you know, this is 1991. We, we already have the history of, of staying with the bad knee from the year before. And um, so Jim Ross, as only Jim Ross can do, excited. well, it was Lex Luger was the, was the benefactor. He was the one sending the boxes. This is all to eliminate Sting as his, as, as you know, because he's the U.S. It was presented that Luger did it to, to get Sting out of, the, out of the world title picture, which, once again, that's heel 101. It makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, now, now later on, and I, once again, I watched this clash recently too. And I don't know if you did Seth, I had, I had forgotten this part and we'll get to the importance of it in a little bit. Uh, sting sting was sitting there writhing in pain after this attack and several baby faces came out to save him, including beautiful Bobby Eaton and Bobby Eaton, who was not known for his talking skills was one of the most vocal on mic about you need to go to the hospital sting. You got time. They have to look at you and clear you. You need to go to the hospital was really pushing the fact sting needed to leave the building. And that would become important later. Um, later on, about two segments later, Paul Dangerously is back, and he's by himself this time. No Rude, no Medusa, and mm-hmm. he, he claims that he's upset, that he's, he's disgusted that, that he ever called Lex Luger his friend. He's disgusted that he ever called Medusa his friend. But um, he did look at the contract, and there is a loophole. If Sting cannot make it back by bell time, and, and Tony Schiavone's doing the interview, by the way, um, and he shows the contract to Tony Schiavone. Tell him I'm not lying, Tony. Uh, if Sting is not back by the bell time, uh, he will have to forfeit the belt to his challenger this evening, which is Ravishing Rick Rude. And though Rick Rude wants to beat him clean for the mat for the belt, uh, rules are rules, and they have to be followed. I mean, it's very obvious that Paul Lee's being false, uh, falsely humble, but right. it's a great angle at that point, you know? Yeah, um, because for anybody with... Uh, any real common sense, just as a viewer, mm-hmm. you, you're seeing the pieces being put in place like, oh, this was all a ruse. This, this, this was all right. a big plan. To and, and the way Paul Lee talks about he's disgusted at Luger and, and, and Medusa is about as disingenuous as you can get, is it not? Mm-hmm. So that, that, that does lead to the match. Uh, why don't you take it over? Because I know this is one of your favorite angles of all time, and let the result what happened when the actual title match finally comes later in the card. Right. Well, the, I think the I think it was Eric Bischoff was playing like reporter on the scene. You know how sometimes mm-hmm. they would have somebody in in those days since you know live satellite TV was wasn't as big of a thing for for news. They would have Eric Bischoff with a with a phone gimmick where they just have his still photo and they're saying, "Oh, he's he's at the the hospital." Right. Right, and Ross is calling them from the announce table. Yeah, you're right. Right, right, and and so Bischoff is giving the these updates on Sting and will he make it back? And so it comes match time, and Rude comes out, and uh, Paul's all cocky, and the, and lo and behold, when uh, they start, I think I think I started doing a countdown. Um, yes, they had the referee. Uh, Paul Heyman ordered the referee to start a ten count, like to count them out to start the match. Right. And then, lo and behold, about this time, they have a camera outside the arena, and here comes the ambulance. And, and here, here, here comes another thing I didn't notice. I don't know if you if you caught this either. Sting initially went to the wrong door. It was locked to try to get into the building. Why the ten counts going on? You know, he's got. Who do you think is the wrestler who was the babyface wrestler in the back who steered him towards the wrong door to begin with? Probably Bobby Eaton. Beautiful Bobby Eaton. It's all starting to make sense now, isn't it? <laughs> right. So the ten counts going on. Sting's hobbling the ring. He's got his knee. He's got his knee all bandaged up. And of course, I love the fact they. I love the fact that he wore long tights. They even cut the bottom half of his tights up so they could, so they could tape his knee up. That was great. I thought it was a great visual. But anyway, mm-hmm. I digress. Oh yeah, yeah. And so this is of course not part of Paulie's plan. He thought Sting would stay at the hospital, 
So he starts yelling at the ref to just ring the bell, you know, to so they can uh, uh, count him out. And Sting makes it to the ring, makes a big fired up uh, assault on on Rude. Uh, Rude eventually, though, in the end, through skullduggery, is able to beat Sting. So even though Sting was injured, uh, he uh, he still fought valiantly and lost the title to. Rick Rude, which actually began one of the <laughs> longest U.S. title reigns in in company history. I mean, I don't think it was long, right. as long as Luger's run, but it was it was almost exactly a year. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was close to calendar year. And it, the the match itself, uh, if if I may, was brilliant in how it was put together. Um, uh, it was. I'm sure a lot of that had to do with Rick Rude. Rick sold like crazy for Sting. I mean, it was a very short match, uh, but you have to you have to understand the story they're trying to tell. That Rick Rude was a guy who was trying to, to trying to essentially steal the title and did not really want to have to fight. And they had Sting even press slam him on the on the rampway at the beginning of the match. And I remember I said last week Rick Rude didn't take a lot of big bumps, but he took when he, he but he'd always take one or two and he made them count. That's an example of what I'm talking about. Because yeah, he took the bump, but then Sting had to sell his knee because it was right at the beginning. Because he had to get all that weight up, you know, and so that was the that was the story of the whole match, the all four or five minutes that it was, was Sting was just beating him like a, like a, like a government mule to quote Jim Ross, but eventually the knee gave out, and then I believe he got clipped at the end. But the way it was told is um, was brilliant, you know, where Sting was the valiant hero who was not gonna gonna be denied, but his knee was shot, and it wasn't his fault, and. Rick Rude wound up, you know, a handful of tights to get the win. So, you know, it was well done. Don't know if that kind of thing would get over now, but 1991, the, the true baby face, true heel, it worked, especially considering how over Sting was and how hated Rick Rude was. Um, and, and, and I would, I would be, you know, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention this all of off topic for anybody out there who's wanting to be a wrestler, young, any of our listeners are young guys in training, go back and watch that match. You don't have to do all this gazillion stuff to make it make sense. And Rick Rude knew he was going to win, so it did not hurt him or make him look weak by giving Sting 90, an injured Sting at that, 90% of the match because he understood the finish. But I digress. You can move back on to the dangerous lines. I had to get that off my chest. I'm sorry. So shortly after <laughs> the match ends and Clash of the Champions, Tony Schiavone gets to interview Paulie Dangerously, and this is actually the first time in WCW we hear the name Dangerous Alliance. I don't usually like playing uh, clips on, on the show, but the, this, this promo is so effective that it, it gets the point across. All right, Jim Ross, thank you very much. And, you know, we thought about a loophole a lot, and I know you thought it would be the loophole, but you could not deny the courage, the intestinal fortitude of the stinger. It was supposed to be here because it was a setup. It was a conspiracy by the mastermind, by Rick Rude, the U.S. champion, by Medusa, by the total package. You're one of best friend, Lex Luger, World Championship Wrestling. Pah! Everybody on the committees, Pah! on the board of directors. Pah! Now you answer to us. Now the Dangerous Alliance calls the shots. Without a sweat. And his name is Ravishik Rude. He wasn't supposed to be here. And the walls come a tumbling down, Tony. <laughs> a gallant effort for a very noble cause, Sting, fighting to keep the hopes and the prayers of all the little stingers alive. Well, the hopes and the prayers, Sting, they died. And what Ravishing Rick Rude has to say to you, what Ravishing Rick Rude, the United States champion, has to say to you, Sting, is nice guys finish last. A new U.S. heavyweight champion. Starcade is December 29th, only on pay-per-view. You won't want to miss this one. Here's more about it. And one of the subtle things about that promo, and first off, everything in both those promos were heel 101. You know, the, oh, yeah. The, the, they are absolutely gloating. They think they're geniuses when really they just cheated their way into the belt. And when Rude was cutting his promo, Paul E. like gets behind Shivani and put, puts his puts his arms around him like he's showing off the cell phone and how great his cell phone is. And Shivani's like his big buddy, and Tony is absolutely selling it like he's disgusted. <laughs> right, right. It's like I do not want this this diseased individual to touch me. He's just lower than human life. Yeah, it was <laughs> very well done. Um, 
And, 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 and of course, Medusa's there in tow with him, and he, and he praises her and Lex Luger. So now the gig's up. We knew that they, he was in collusion with Harley Race and Lex Luger all along, which, once again, you and I have both lamented on both this podcast and the Wrestling Brethren podcast that that's something that's sorely missing in wrestling today that really worked to sell this entire angle was that heels were buddies outside of the ring and baby faces were buddies outside the ring. They kind of watched each other's back. And you don't have that anymore. And I really missed that. And I thought mm-hmm. the Dangerous Alliance was a great way of showing that. What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. And I, in case we didn't mention it before, when you look at these names, and we'll get into Sting Squadron later, uh, you look at all those names, you know, Rick Rude, Steve Austin, Arn Anderson, Larry Zabisco, Medusa, Bobby Eaton, and Paul Heyman. All so but two of only, those guys. Only two of them are in the Hall of Fame, right? All but two of them are are in the Hall of Fame, you know. Uh, and I, I think it's a given that, that the Midnight Express will go in at some point, and Paul Heyman will go in at some point. I think that's a given, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. It, it, it's only a matter of time. I'm actually kind of surprised Midnight's didn't go in this year, but uh, there's always next year. And Heyman, it may take a few more years, but he is going to go in. I, I, I just so you're looking at a, a stable that is legitimately made up of nothing but Hall of Fame level talent. Exactly. And, and I mean the. The smallest player in that particular stable is probably stunning Steve Austin because he's the most green and, and he's the rookie. And oh, by the way, he went on to become the 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 the, the, the biggest selling star in the history of the business. You know, so Cer- certainly probably sold more T-shirts. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the minor player in the, in, in, in this yeah. whole thing, right? <laughs> but you know, the the what did you think? Because you this is right about the time you started watching wrestling. Did you like the idea of a stable? Because you got this heel stable in the Dangerous Alliance, and then you've kind of got a mini stable with Harley Race and his guys, and the crown jewel of that, of course, is the world champion. Like, so them being in collusion together and kind of watching each other's back, was that okay with you, or did, did you, would you rather see them fighting each other? Oh, absolutely. I like that they were aligned. It makes sense that villains would want to keep the top heroes at bay. I mean, I, I think we can agree on this. It happens in comics all the time. Oh, yeah. Those are some of your the best comic books to pick up when you were reading comic books as a kid when the Joker and the Riddler teamed up to take out Batman. Or, you, mm-hmm. know, you know, if it was, I mean, the Sinister Six, that's six guys try to take Spider-Man down. How awesome is that? You know, that's six. That's more bang for your buck, isn't it? Right. So the next week, I think. On, this would have been remember, uh, sat- Saturday night, right? Right. There was no, there was no Raw or no Nitro at this point. The flagship television show for WCW was the old 605 on TBS, the Superstation, WCW Saturday Night. That was when the entire alliance was introduced. Uh, Jim Ross did a long promo segment where he interviewed Paul Heyman, and we knew already that Paul Heyman, Rick Rude, and Medusa were the quote-unquote dangerous alliance, as he had called them, but he also said he was expanding. And he introduced uh, – this was all to set up, by the way, listeners – the next big show that WCW had was a Thanksgiving show in the Omni in Atlanta, which uh, we've discussed before how important Thanksgiving and Christmas were for wrestling, especially in the South back in the day. So that was carrying on that tradition. It wasn't a pay-per-view, but it was a big show with a big card. Uh, and I, I would be remiss, once again, if I didn't mention this time, Dusty Rhodes is, is back booking the company at this point. So this is all Dusty's booking. So, uh, you know. It's hard to do a classic wrestling memories episode without mentioning D- Dusty. If you're going to talk anything from 1970 to about 2005, yes, you're right. <laughs> he had his thumb somewhere involved in it or was in direct opposition to it, one of the two. Um, but anyway, you know, this, as he announces, when he announces the other members, uh, there was supposed to be a world title match, tag team title match between Barry Windham and um, Dustin Reynolds against the Enforcers, which were Larry Zabisco and Arn Anderson. And they introduced them. Well, then they switched it because we just discussed how Barry got his arm broken by the enforcers. They replaced Barry with Ricky Steamboat. And because they had done that, Paul Heyman introduces Bobby Eaton. And now the subtleness of that, that uh, of him misguiding Sting makes sense. And now Bobby's fully ensconced as a, as, as a heel and he's back in it. And because the babyface side was going to switch who the team was, so was Paul. And the new team was going to be Arn and Bobby instead of Arn and Larry. And Arn cuts a great promo where he talks about him and Bobby had combined and held the world title tag title six times. They were the two best tag team wrestlers, which at the time, if you weren't watching wrestling, 
uh, everybody everybody would tell you that Bobby Eaton and Arn Anderson were the two best tag team. Right? You always heard that about them, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's also worth mentioning, you talk about the, the heel subtlety and uh, heel 101. Mm-hmm. It was the enforcers that broke Barry Windham's arm. Right. And then they complain exactly. that Dustin gets a replacement. Mm-hmm. Of course, whining, it's your fault to begin with, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. And he also introduces Steve Austin. And, and, and for behind-the-scenes notes, we discussed how he had been coming out with Lady Blossom. She would have nothing to do with the Dangerous Alliance. Like we said, she was his real-life wife, Jeannie. She was pregnant with their second child, so she needed to come off uh, television before she started showing. And her last television appearance would be the Clash of the Champions we just played that clip from uh, the, the, the week before this Saturday night that we're talking about. And, uh, you know, it was, it was a great promo. It's, we discussed whether we were going to play it or not. We've already played you one clip, but we're not because it is so long. But you are going to put a link in the description if they want to go hear this great promo where the entire Dangerous Alliance is introduced and all the, the skullduggery is kind of explained by Paul Lee as only he can explain. Is that correct? You can put that link in there? Absolutely. ClassicWrestlingMemories.com, and you'll see the link for the show for the Dangerous Alliance. The show is just going to be called Dangerous Alliance, so you can just do a search for it. And I'm going to put all the relevant clips on there. The, the clip before with uh, Shivani and, and Heyman, we'll put that promo in. And, and if I can find the match, I'll I'll probably try linking the match as well. Right. But so now it's 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 we've gone from Halloween Havoc to which was like October 23rd. Third, I think, and now it's like November twenty third. So literally a month later, Rick Rude's announced, and the entire stable is 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 set in stone. And it is Medusa and Paulie kind of the managerial brains. The Crown Jewels, Rick Rude. They switched out Larry Zabisco for Bobby Eaton. So the tag team is Bobby Eaton and Arn Anderson. Steve Austin is your is your you know your your TV champion, your 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 secondary champion within the stable, and Larry Zabisco's the the slimy, wormy veteran who will do do dirty deeds for the group. And there you go, that's the group. Mm-hmm. Like I said, legitimately, all but two of them in the Hall of Fame, and those two we know will go in at some point. So, pretty awesome lineup. And it's literally within a month this is established. And and, and think about the impact they've had. They, 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 they've got the world tag team champions. They've got the world TV champion. And their first real act as a group was to take advantage of, a, of an uh, collude with the world champion to take out the U.S. champion and get the U.S. title in their camp. So they've got all the belts with the world title, essentially. Right, right. Anderson and Eaton got the tag titles. I don't believe that match was televised. Mm. Uh, that, that was that was that was the. Um, my understanding was that was it was kind of like the Freebird thing. They just flipped out him and Larry, and the committee let him be the other half of the champion titles. I think by okay. beating Steamboat and 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 Dustin at this Thanksgiving night show I was talking about in the Omni in Atlanta, I think that the committee said that was good enough. I, I I could be wrong. I'd have to go back and check the history books. Okay, so so it was at that Omni show, but that that show was not televised, if I recall correctly. No, 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 no. It was not. It was not. It was just, like I said, your traditional holiday show, which we've talked about before, was a big deal back in the day. So the, now, who were those against? I mean, let's look at the babyface side of the company at this point. Hero's got to have somebody to beat up on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, now, granted, uh, Sting did go on to unseat Luger at, I want to say it was Super Brawl. Super Brawl 3. Which would have been, I think, February. February. Um, before we get to Super Brawl, though, because... Uh, they, they back in in these days for a couple of years, uh, WCW had Starcade as a, a gimmick event called Battle Bowl, where this was the first one I believe that, it, that where they where they introduced this gimmick I believe uh, which would yeah it, it it might be, uh, but the gimmick was they would randomly put together tag teams, and my understanding is at least for for, for some of them they were random like. Some of the guys didn't know if they were going to wrestle or not, but that's what, so you'd have teams like Sting and Abdullah the Butcher, where Sting's a babyface and Abdullah's a heel. I think that was a and that a, that that was a work. I mean, that was to progress the storyline because Abby was the first guy that had been bought off by Luger to take out Sting. Mm-hmm. But with the Battle Bowl, uh, any team that won, they they'd probably have probably about half a dozen tag matches and. The teams that won would get entered into a battle royal at the end at the end of the show. That was the main event, a, and then the winner would get two, like a ring a or two something. Ring, a two ring battle royal. Well, where was they had? It was like twenty matches, I think. It was 
I think it was like 40 stars, and they did the, they did a gimmick where Shivani, Magnum TA, and Missy Hyatt were doing the old Tumblr like at the bingo hall with yeah. the, no sorry it was Bischoff, Magnum TA, and 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 Missy. Yeah, and they'd yeah. pull out the names to announce the team. And like you said, the winners would go on. And then after all the tag matches, they had a two-ring battle royal. So they had to set up like a war games where it was two rings side by side, but they had no cage around it. And they'd all st- one ring, and then you had to throw a guy over the side into the other ring. Only one guy left in the first ring. And then the, all the guys in the second ring had to throw everybody out to the floor. So you essentially had just two guys left, a winner in ring one and a winner, winner, winner in ring two. And then they would face each other, uh, having to throw the other one over the top rope to win. And, um, of course, this was the first pay-per-view where we saw the full, the full strength of the Dangerous Alliance. Uh, they were definitely ensconced as the top heel stable. Um, and you would see things, like you said, where some guys didn't know, but then sometimes it was obvious it was, it, you know, it was planned because it was part of the progressive storyline. Like, I think Arn and, and Rick Rude got pulled to be each other's partners. Well, that made sense. They were both dangerous alliance. And I think Lex Luger got pulled to got, got like one of the dangerous alliance as his partner. Well, that makes sense, doesn't it? You know, now, but then Larry Zabisco got, got El Gigante. That's <laughs> one as his partner. Mm-hmm. Didn't work out so well for Larry. In fact, if I remember the finish to that match was El Gigante and, I, and he, fa- he was, fa- they were facing two baby faces. They were facing like Dustin Reynolds and somebody else. I think Tom Zink maybe. And they, and, and, and they did a, this great job where Larry was like basically just talking down to Elegante, calling him an idiot. And so he just got fed up with Larry and just threw him to the wolves. <laughs> let, the, <laughs> let the other team beat him. So, it was, you know, it was, which was also effective in the fact that now you've got the biggest athlete on the roster, not in a battle royal. You see what I'm saying? So mm-hmm. that, that, but it, it, it eventually came down to a Luger, Rude, Steamboat, and Sting, who I think you could argue. Were the two top heels and the two top baby faces in the company at the time? But when you think, right? And, and again, Hall of Fame level names. I mean, Luger is another one. I think it's only a matter of time before he gets in. Right. Exactly. I mean, he's, still, he's already working for the company. He's been working for the company for the past five or six years now. So, yeah, yeah. And 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 I and this was you know typical Dusty booking. Sting it came down to Luger and Sting. Sting eliminated Luger. Um, and that was a way to send the fans home happy at the end of the year. The baby face won, but all the heels still got the belts because it wasn't for a title. Isn't that great mm-hmm. how that works? <laughs> yeah. And and I think that may have been what they used as the catalyst to get Sting that world title match at Super Bowl. At the, at the next pay-per-view, exactly. But while that was going on, you had now Ricky Steamboat and Dustin Runnels, you know, or Dustin Rhodes, feuding with Bobby and, and Arn. You had um, uh, when Barry came back, Barry started tagging with Dustin again, and then Steamboat moved on to to the to work a lot with Steve Austin for the the TV title. You had uh, there when St- because Sting was the world champion, Steamboat was going after uh, Rick Rude for the U.S. title, and I think mm-hmm. Rude even broke his nose at one point. So do do you remember that angle, Seth, where where Steamboat got his nose broken by Rick Rude? Yeah, yeah, he he wore uh, the the kind of face mask thing that that uh, mm. Aldo Montoya wore, that Taker wore when he supposedly had uh, had facial damage. I forget who he did that who did that to him, but yeah, it was one of those things. Actually, not unlike what Kane wears now, uh, right. where it only covers half the face, but it it was a nose protector. I think Str- Tristratus had that for a gimmick for a while as well. She did. She did. Um, Ricky Morton had one when the Four Horsemen did the same thing to him. This wasn't the first time Steamboat had had it done. Steamboat had a similar thing happen in the seventies when he was feuding with Flair. So you know, if it's all if it's all it's all new again. If it's old, you, you get the idea. I mean, it's 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 a great angle. The good looking white meat baby face who all the girls love gets his pretty face messed up by the cocky arrogant heel. Gonna get heat every time, isn't it? Oh yeah, absolutely. So, you know, that that's that around though this time that we're talking about, you know, Sting's won the title, the world title, but they're still they're still coming after Sting. Uh, you can see because you know that the war games, which had always been in the fall or sorry, in the summer during the Great American Bash, when Turner took over and became WCW, they had moved it to their annual pay per view in the spring, which was called Wrestle War, which took place in May. And so all the fans could see that's what this was leading to. That you kind of had four or five baby faces 
that could kind of team together against this cohesive heel unit of the Dangerous Alliance. Um, and but Sting was still one man short. He had himself, he had Steamboat, he had Dustin, and he had Barry. Well, about the same time that, that all that was coming on us, fans were trying to figure out who's going to be number five. Ron Simmons was a possibility, you know, a few other baby faces. Uh, Nikita Koloff returned to the company after being off for about a year. And correct me if I'm wrong, Seth, he had been a heel uh, feuding with Sting and a babyface Lex Luger about a year prior before him showing back up. Is that correct? Yeah, that's true. He came back a year or so earlier as, as a dastardly heel, feuded with Luger over the U.S. title, then feuded with Sting. And I'm not really sure why he was gone for a while. Uh, was was this around the time his wife passed in real life? Yeah, that was the backstage reason why he was gone. But um, damned if I can remember what the kayfabe reason on camera was. You know, um, he just left. But yeah, that was why his wife had passed. Yeah, away. I think I think he just disappeared. Yeah. So you look at these names uh, for this war games, and I'm going to try to uh, do the math here. Uh, so. We have 12 people involved in the match, counting Paul E. and Medusa. And Medusa did definitely get involved in the match. Paul E., not so much. But uh, by my count, out of the 12 people involved in this match, eight of them are current Hall of Famers, and at least two of them we know are shoe-ins for future Hall of Fame inductions. Yeah, yeah, I would think the only one that's a question mark would probably be Nikita Koloff. And there's still an argument for him going in, you know. Mm -hmm. Um yeah, because uh, Nikita, while not as big uh, as a star as Goldberg would be, I think the analogy is fair. Like, he was only mm -hmm. around for a few years, but those few years he was very effective, and when he was a heel, he was hated, and when he was a babyface, uh, people loved him. I mean, just look at that uh, Great American Bash match with Flair. Mm -hmm. I mean, that that's his first big big time angle he had been in the business a year and he's feuding with rick flair over the world title and main eventing the very first great american bash that's a thirty thousand seat outdoor arena in 1984 or 85 think about that and a little over a year later after the tragic magnum ta car wreck he essentially is in, is is turned babyface and put into that spot as the number two babyface in the company and is just as effective it's only a three-and-a-half, four-year run, but ooh, that's a pretty good three-and-a-half, four-year run, you know? Right, absolutely, and and it makes sense. I think we talked about Dusty earlier, you know, about how we can't seem to make a show without mentioning <laughs> Dusty, who, who was a very famous tag team partner of Dusty, Nikita. Yeah, exactly. They, they, like I said, he replaced Magnum. They went from being the, the what was it, the America's team, was what he called him and Magnum, to the superpowers, which, you know, was brilliant because he was the American dream and Nikita was the Russian nightmare. <laughs> how cool mm -hmm. is that right right but but anyway you know so he obviously kind of fills that fifth slot so the psychology going into wrestle war and the war games match is just brilliant you've got this cohesive unit in the in the heels this is booking 101 stacking the odds against the baby faces where the only thing that seems to be maybe kind of hinky with the heels is larry zabisco kind of seems to be on the outs he's been replaced by bobby eaton as half of the tag team champion he lost to eligante like we mentioned at at, at starcade and and or or, or had agante turn on him i should say in his tag match so he's kind of and he's even gotten to the point where he's verbally and openly disagreed not argued but disagreed with paul e on a promo on television so that's about the only dissension we've really got in the heel side. But on the baby face side, well, Steamboat's face is still messed up from Rude. Barry's hand's not 100%. Sting doesn't know if he can trust Nikita because Nikita, the last time he saw him, was feuding with him and was a dastardly heel. So it's just booking 101. You've stacked all the, the deck against the baby faces. Do you agree with that, Seth, looking at it as a fan? Yeah, especially a little over a year ago. Barry Windham was in a heel run with the yeah, horse. That's true too. Yeah, you yeah, know, that's true um, too. Where they did what I thought for its time, you you couldn't do it now in this day and age of high def television, unless you got somebody really as a lookalike. They did that finish at, at Halloween Havoc, where it was Sid versus Sting, and oh, they where brawled Barry to the back dressed up as, as Sting. And Barry came and and dressed up as Sting, and he he threw the match for for Sid, and then Sting comes out with his arm bandage in a rope i mean we, we we talked about it before uh earlier in the show that 
you know, this stuff may not fly now, but for 1991 in classic wrestling, 1992, I mean, that stuff, you know, I'm, I'm making the, the motion like, you know, with my finger, like, you know, fish hook grabbing the jaw. Oh, know? yeah. yeah. It hooked you in. It hooked you in. And, and, and we would be remiss if we didn't mention when the match finally happens, we've got all this, this Hall of Fame level talent competing. Oh, you only you got Jim Ross and Tony Schiavone calling the action. Not a bad duo either. <laughs> so right, right, absolutely. Uh, Nick Nick Patrick is is the and and I think uh, Randy Pee Wee Anderson uh, to if there was a referees Hall of Fame, both would be in it. Are the mm-hmm. refs? I mean, just it's it's a testament to how deep WCW's roster of talent was at every every facet of on camera talent at that time. Don't you agree? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know the company was still bleeding money at this point, so. Oh yeah, you yeah. Know, what, what what does that say for it? But um, right, and, and we're not even mentioning the fact that you got Harley Race and Van Vader is coming in, and uh, you know uh, Lex Luger and Ron Simmons and uh, Tracy Smothers and and Steve Armstrong, I think, are still tagging, and the Freebirds are there, and oh yeah, Ricky Morton's, I think, still hanging around, and it's a pretty deep roster in the company at this point, you know. Um, right, right. The only thing they're really missing is Ric Flair, and. He was doing okay with Randy Savage and the WWF around the same time. Just saying. Uh, and yeah. you have to realize, because this is May, we're talking about this pay-per-view. This is essentially WCW's counter-program to WrestleMania. You know that. Mm-hmm. So it has to be a big bang card. And, a, and, and that card is definitely sold on this War Games match as the main event. Don't you agree? Yes, yes, absolutely. And, of course, War Games, it's five-on-five. Yeah, and for some reason, magically, I I don't understand how uh, the heels always win the coin toss and get or, and, are, and are the first to get the the second man in. I mean, I, I except in except in TNA because well, yeah. don't even try to defend it. Don't. Uh, I won't. <laughs> <laughs> don't. I, but we're trying to be story. different. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the only the only thing I could think that that. Moral of the story, ladies and gentlemen, if you book your fantasy promotion to have a war games match. Book the heels to win the coin toss. Right. That's 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 all I'm saying. But you know, the match itself, wow. This was only the second match that Dave Meltzer had ever given five stars in WCW. He had given five stars to Crockett stuff, you know, the the, the vaunted trilogy of you know Flair Steamboat and, and the funk uh Flair stuff, but he'd only given one other five star match ever since Turner had bought it and become WCW, and that was the War Games the year prior where Sid Vicious legitimately almost killed uh, Brian Pillman with those two power bombs back-to-back. Um, so, you know, if you're, a big, if you're a big fan of Dave Meltzer's star ratings, he gave it five stars. That should tell you how good a match it was. Yeah, uh, and, I'm and, sure you've recently watched this match, haven't you, Seth? Yeah, yeah, ab- absolutely. And the finish did kind of confuse me when I was... Uh, a teenager watching this back in the day, mm-hmm. but now my understanding is that uh, Bobby Eaton had an injury, and that's why he was the last in and the guy that uh, got submitted early. So he was only in the match for a few minutes, right? Uh, but but I mean uh, the re- the way that he got had to submit it was it was a well told story, right? Right, because there was the turnbuckle that the, the the heels were kept trying to undo. And so they could probably do something dastardly to the faces because obviously it's a cage match. It's, it's no DQ. And uh, Bobby got hit with what was it? The 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 uh, the hook end it, of the of the turnbuckle. Yeah, it's what holds up the turnbuckle, right? Yes, yeah, the big hook that hooks into a uh, an eye socket that's on the ring post, and it mm-hmm. is very solid steel. Take it from a guy who's been in a, a ring once or twice; it's very solid. And they had Bobby holding Sting. So that Zabisco could whack Sting, and Sting moved out of the way at the last second, and he clipped Bobby on the arm. Then Sting bumped him, slapped on the the arm bar on Bobby Eaton. And Bobby had no no choice but to tap. But this was, you know, that was just the finish. There was, I think, what probably eight of the ten guys ju- juiced that night got color. Mm-hmm. They just so there's if if you're a weak if you have a weak stomach, this might not be a match you want might want to avoid. Because it's extremely bloody. Uh, this is Dusty Rhodes booking. You know, this is you know. There's still a lot of the remnants of the Crockett promotion left still in the company at the time, where blood and guts at the right time in a match like this made sense and was was kind of expected. 
you know, not only by the boys, but the fans kind of expected it. You know, you knew you were going to see a bloodbath. Um, it's a there cage was match, inc- you know. <laughs> right, right, right. Steve Steve Austin bled profusely, probably more than anybody else, but everybody else bled. Dustin, Barry, Barry and Dustin bled like crazy. I think about the only guys that didn't get, get color were Bobby Eaton because he came in so late, and, and I think maybe Steamboat. And they were like the only two guys who didn't get color. Um, and just a lot of really inventive spots for the time using the cage. Uh, uh, like like steamboat basically monkey swinging from the top of the cage and 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 and, and you know kicking people like he was playing chicken on the old monkey bars. Mm-hmm. Um, they did the spot where he like when Rude tried it and they grabbed Rude and like swung him up so his back hit the the top of the cage and they took a big belly bump from like the top of the cage to the ring and yeah I I think uh, I think Sting gorilla pressed Rude and was like slamming him into the top of the cage because yep. he's, he's like like he's doing reps. Yeah, there was that fantastic spot where, where I, if I can't remember if it was Arn or Rick Rude, but they got their head caught in between the two uh, rings, and Dustin Rhodes grabbed one leg and Barry Windham grabbed another, and they're like they were essentially trying to corkscrew his head off, you know. And <laughs> it's, it's an incredible visual. You remember the spot I'm talking about, don't you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, like they were doing a wishbone type thing, right? Yeah, yeah, it was it was awesome. Yeah, it was great. And there was a spot where Medusa tried to uh, climb up to the top of the cage to sneak. Paulie's phone in, but Sting, who hadn't gone in yet, climbed up and 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 chased her back down. I mean, and this is Medusa with kicked her high heels off and is in like a you know a little evening dress, mini evening dress. Uh, you know, yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing. It's just everybody. It was awesome, and it deserved five star. The the best way to describe it towards the end of the match, Jim Ross and I know, I know all of our listeners are familiar with Jim Ross's announcing style. He's at that point where Jim Ross gets where he's like completely into it you know so you know and he says you are seeing wcw at its most violent and athletic best and i think that's a very apt description of what this match was do you agree yeah absolutely like like you said uh all but like two people bled at least as Mm -hmm. far as uh in the match you had a very violent finish and of course once again heel 101 the heels you know, prop up the baby face like they're going to team up on them. And of course, their plan backfires. And then they blame the guy that actually mm-hmm. didn't make actually. the mistake. You know, you, you could make the argument that Eaton's the guy that screwed up because he, he let Sting, Sting get up. out of his grasp. Yeah. Right. So, and, and we had talked about, you know, that they had already had planted a little small seed of dissension with Larry Zabisco. And so this is where we kind of see the dangerous, in, dangerous alliance begin to crumble. Um, they pretty much publicly fire him out of the, out, out of the Alliance right there that night. Um, thought it was very well done post-match as they're raising the, 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 the cage. Everybody's arguing with, with Larry, what happened, what happened. And Paulie's being the most adamant. Of course, Paulie's because he's, he's the one that can't back up what he's saying. And when Zabisco, who's obviously a tough guy, a former world champion stands up to him, Paul like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And, and, uh, you know, it was, it was very interesting. Uh, but I, I thought the post match and the be- the beginning of the dis- dissolving of the faction was well well done too. I mean, it kind of shows for those of you that weren't familiar with Larry Zabisco, it was a good it was a good showing of how good Larry Zabisco could be and why he's in the Hall of Fame. I thought. What say ye? Yeah, absolutely. Because I remember I was buying up WCW magazines. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, this is back in the day where you just go down to the local newsstand or supermarket and and you could just right. buy wrestling magazines. And he actually wrote a piece. Now, I'm sure it was worked. It may not have actually been him. It could have been just some writer. Those written. Yeah. And uh, it was him saying, you know, I, I have what it takes, and I'm going to share it with, with you to how to take apart the Dangerous Alliance piece by piece. You know, and right. he, he said, you know, with with Bobby Eaton, you just got to avoid the, the Alabama jam. Um, I think he tried to claim Rick Rude was vulnerable in the midsection, which I I question. <laughs> he was just probably playing on the fact that he had such great abs, you know. Right, right, right. Um, but I'd also be uh, remiss if I didn't if I didn't mention it at the beginning of this match, when, before the bell rings, Paul E like brings out this big <laughs> yeah. sheet of paper like like it's a freaking scroll or something like that, like 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 he's a college football like coach the, and, and he's it looks like, like the blueprints to like the empire state building or the, or the sears <laughs> yeah. tower in chicago it's just huge like schematics 
And if and, this happens, this is going to happen. <laughs> and I guarantee you, we talk about how some stuff never ages well. Paul Heyman, to this day, he could do that on the next WWE pay-per-view, and he could make it work. And, and, and once again, Heel 101 and the subtleties sometimes that fans miss the first time watching it, when you go back and watch it, he keeps talking as he's showing this huge schematic we're talking about. Get him over to this corner over here. So it's implied that they had either bought off the ring crew or before the snuck in before the show started and messed with that turnbuckle so they could do the whole spot for the finish to begin with. You know, just brilliant, brilliant mm-hmm. stuff. And 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 he's Paulie's so swarmy. He's, as you like to say, he has a very punchable face, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I I have to agree with Jim Ross uh, when it comes to both Paul Heyman and Jim Cornette. You two are two guys that are very easy to not like. And in wrestling, that's not a bad thing. <laughs> right. I don't think Paul Heyman has a babyface bone in his body, although, granted, yep. recently he's kind of been a babyface just because Brock's so loved. But He's know. been a babyface because I, I've been trying to figure out for the last two months why every crowd at every wrestling show nowadays, including the WWE, has turned into the ECW arena crowd from 1996. I don't know how that, how 18 years it it evolved or devolved to that, but it has. (laughs) (laughs) But I digress. Uh, But, you know, you're right. I mean, really, Cornette's had two babyface runs in his entire career, and one was because of Paul Heyman. (laughs) (laughs) And the other was because he sided with Ricky and Robert against a very racially charged New Jack and Mustafa as the gangsters. So it took New Jack, Mustafa, and Paul Heyman to turn Jim Cornette baby face there you go (laughs) well one of my favorite quotes about paul Heyman is from jim Cornette saying paul Heyman could turn genghis khan baby face he could (laughs) Cornette is exactly right um he's just that dislikable you know he's and, and, and and like ross said that's not a bad thing that's why he was when he would say you've heard me say on both this and and the old a1 podcast the best characters are usually guys who are somewhat similar to who you really are i am there's a part of of jonathan bullock that is crazy train that's kind of that that kid that that never grew up and silly and wants to be you know um paulie is kind of that guy in real life if you meet him i mean he's not a a complete utter douchebag and i don't think he's going to kick people in wheelchairs out into the street you know into moving traffic but there's a part of him which is why when he cuts the promos about I'm going to take apart WCW brick by brick and all that, there's some sincerity in, in it because he really was pissed at the time at the company, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Part of what yeah. made it work. I hope this doesn't come out the wrong way because it, I, I mean this as a compliment, not as anything uh, stereotypical or anything like that. But, I mean, he's a New York Jew and grew up the son of a New York lawyer. Oh, he'll be, he'll probably tell you that you're not gonna you're not offending anyone. He, he yeah. yeah, that's how he describes himself. I've heard him say, "Well, after all, I am just a little rich boy from New York City who's Jewish, and his daddy's a lawyer." I've heard him say that. So, mm-hmm. or is he that guy? I think he put it as the son of a New York Jew, Jew lawyer. I think that's how he exactly worded it. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, it's it's uh, you know, and and Rick Rude, I think he works in this gimmick at the time because. I think he was a little upset about how everything ended the WWF and how his run didn't go. So he was a little angry, you know. Um, we discussed last week how he could kind of be paranoid. Um, so yeah, it was it, it, it was kind of it kind of sucked that they started to break up the the alliance that fast because we said it starts Halloween Havoc in October, late October, and here we are late May and it's already beginning to crumble. Yeah, I felt yeah. that this staple could have had much longer legs had they wanted it to go that way, don't you? Yes, I, I do too, and correct me if I'm wrong, and this is one of those things that's going to be hard for me to admit uh, if it's true, but this is around the time Bill Watts started taking over, right? And that's a major reason why this broke up, I think. Uh, I do not, for, and I could be wrong, and if I am wrong, please, listeners, let me know, uh, but my understanding is that uh, Bill Watts and Paul Heyman are not the, the, the fastest of friends, shall we say. I don't think that Bill is a bit, as big a fan of Paul Lee as other promoters are. Plus the fact that I don't think Rick Rude and Bill Watts got along that well. And the Dangerous Alliance, as great as they were, they aren't the kind of guys that Bill Watts likes to push. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Bill uh, Watts, if I recall correctly, likes the big hosses, mm-hmm. which doesn't describe anybody in the Dangerous Alliance. 
football players, former football players, which yeah. also other Steve Austin is none of the guys at the Dangerous Alliance. I believe there was some legal issues with Paul Paul Heyman and WCW at this point because Bill Watts basically came in and started cutting people's salaries. And, he did. Uh, Paul Heyman, again, son of a New York Jew lawyer, uh, basically took WCW to court on that and, that. and that's why he disappeared and basically started working for ECW shortly after that. Yeah, and, I mean, and that's what happened to a lot of them. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, um, if you kind of see, it was weird and how the Dangerous Alliance, it, it didn't, it didn't, it just, it was that and then it was gone. Austin kind of got moved into a tag team with, with Pillman, which is one of the most underrated tag teams of all time, the Hollywood Blondes, or at least Absolutely. that that incarnation. There's been many Hollywood Blondes. Um, uh, Rude and, and Medusa left as a package and just said they were leaving amicably from the Dangerous Alliance. So really all that was left was Bobby Eaton and, and Arn Anderson. And about that time, Flair came back, so they reformed the Four Horsemen. And, you know, uh, uh, Bobby went to Smoky Mountain for a little while to work for, work for, for Cornette and... Something that started so strong kind of just whimpered out, and I, and I hate that because mm-hmm. for me, obviously, I think I think fans all would be, not be shocked to hear. I think the the four horsemen are the greatest stable of all time, and when I say the four horsemen, no. I mean the horsemen, the horsemen <laughs> of the Crockett run. No disrespect to Pillman or he who should not be named or Malenko or any of these other guys. They were all great. They didn't have the oomph of the of the first three incarnations. Uh, I would dare say after that, I think the Dangerous Alliance is my second favorite stable of all time. I know a lot of people will say the NWO, and I think the NWO had a bigger impact on the business overall than the Dangerous Alliance, but I don't think it was as good as the Dangerous Alliance. And some of that could have been the booking. Some of that could have been Dusty's, you know, sprinkling that dusty magic dust on it, you know. Mm-hmm. But when you look at the core of the NWO, you know, Hogan, Nash, Hall, uh, uh, Bischoff, and I would say probably what DiBiase and and and, and X Pac, all Hall of Famers, all Hall mm-hmm. of Famers. Hulk Hogan, arguably the biggest star in the history of wrestling. But then the other the one's other got the other guy. You can argue for being the biggest star in the history of wrestling in his in his rookie year. And uh, Heyman is on just about everybody's Mount Rushmore of, of announcers. Medusa's on about everybody's Mount Rushmore of of female wrestlers. Um. Bobby Eaton and Arn Anderson, two of the greatest tag team wrestlers of all time. Rick Rude, Hall of Famer without question. Larry Zbysko, Hall of Famer without question. I don't know that the parts to the to the Dangerous Lives are any any weaker than the NWO. Uh, what do you what do you say to that analogy and that comparison? Yeah, a- absolutely. And you mentioned Bischoff, another guy who's not in, but we know is going in. It, it, sure. It's just a matter of time. And sure. it, it really was. If I recall correctly, uh, it was in, in the real life story. Uh, it was Bill Watts that that broke up the Dangerous Alliance. Like you said, it, it, he mm-hmm. they weren't the type of people that he liked. And this is what I meant earlier when I said it's hard for me to admit that Bill Watts run uh, for the rest of '92. And mm-hmm. I don't know if it went into '93 or not, mm-hmm. but uh, it was arguably my favorite time in wrestling because i said before when we covered the great american bash 1992 this was the show that truly made me a wcw fan so the guy that is responsible for truly making me a diehard wcw fan also broke up one of my favorite stables of all time yeah i mean you can you can see the change um almost instantly from the dangerous alliance being a part of almost every top storyline, what do we have when Watts comes in? Well, it's the ascension of, of Van Vader. It's uh, Ron Simmons gets pushed to the moon. He brings in Doc <laughs> and, and Gordy Watts. from Japan. Well, we won't talk about that. Everybody, <laughs> <laughs> Nick Goulas had George. <laughs> Bill had – yeah, yeah, it, it happens. It happens. But, I mean, for the most part – and once again, I said he liked football players. Eric did play football at Louisville. even if son or no son he was a football player but i mean that's it just is what it is i mean it's i love ron simmons love love especially that era vader he was awesome and uh miracle violence connection besides being one of the greatest tag team names of all time (laughs) are you kidding me doc and gordy now both granted both of them were a little past their prime but they still had a lot left in the tank i love all those things he did and 
all those guys are Hall of Famers in my eyes, but they just didn't have the same charm. I like my wrestling like Rick Rude, since we're talking about the, the Dangerous Alliance, says black hats, white hats, and the Dangerous Alliance were great black hats. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. And a- Absolutely agreed. And I don't know if you get that with Doc and Gordy. Were they black hats or were they white hats? They were kind of both. And, you know, yeah, they were they awesome. They were bad asses. They were, yeah, they, they were hosses. They were just big dudes that came in and threw people around. And there's nothing wrong with that. But I want my wrestling to be athletic and entertaining. And theirs was sometimes just athletic. I guess that's what I'm saying. Okay, I think that's going to wrap up our talk here on Classic Wrestling Memories, talking the Dangerous Alliance. And the website is ClassicWrestlingMemories.com. The Twitter is TWBP Show. That is for the Wrestling Brethren Podcast Show. And the website, uh, if you want to look at our proper podcast, it's TWB Podcast. But we also have a new forum up. And if you're if you're listening to this and you're an old time a1-wrestling.com poster, just go to BehindTheSquaredCircle.com, and your old login should still work. If you're itching to get back on the message boards to talk some wrestling, you know, we, we got WrestleMania around the corner. And Train, if people want to get a hold of you, uh, how can they do that? They can always find me on Twitter at CrazyTrain underscore JB. And once again, TWBPShow.com and our sister show, Geekville Radio, is at GeekvilleRadio.com and at Geekville Radio on Twitter. I can be reached at Seth at A1-Wrestling.com for email. And this has been Classic Wrestling Memories. We'll talk to you folks again next time. Classic Wrestling Memories is part of the Wrestling Brethren podcast family and can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and at ClassicWrestlingMemories.com. The views expressed by the hosts and or guests are purely their own and do not reflect the opinions of ClassicWrestlingMemories.com, BehindTheSquaredCircle.com, the Wrestling Brethren Network, or any affiliates. Some media used by Classic Wrestling Memories may be the copyright of its respective owners, all rights reserved. wanted me to come out here and prove myself to the dangerous alliance. But when I had Austin flat on his back, I'm told, did I prove something to you, boys? Huh? When I smacked you, Paul, and that sweat exploded from your face and your molars cracked, did I prove something to you? Nobody calls me trash. You know, I should have figured all along, Bobby Eaton... The biggest puppet of the DA would be at Paulie's beck and call. You know, it's going to start with you, Eaton. I'm going to take you and I'm going to punch your face in till it's all swollen. I'm going to yank your hair out. I'm going to make you so incredibly ugly that when you and Paulie are walking down the street, people are going to think you guys are twins. It's going to start with Eaton. It's going to end with Paul dangerously now look at all you punks in the DA use your time wisely take the opportunity and get all the lies out of your system while you can tell the whole world you're not afraid of me <laughs> well you will be boys you will be